Brother Robert Miller will be giving us our message this morning, and he's asked me to read Acts 4, 12, and John 13, 34. So Acts 4.12 reads, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And in John 13, verse 34, says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. That ends the reading. The title of his message is The Sacrifice and Love of Christ. I'll turn it over to him now. I mean, if you put on the other side here. Yeah, I'm left-eared, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I'm left-handed, so I guess I'm left-eared. You want to click this on? You can just stand up. Yeah, I can do that. Kind of like Jim Taggart. They wired him up one time, and he said he felt like a suicide bomber. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Brother John. Well, it's good to be out here in New Mexico again, and uh, I was kind of sympathizing with Brother Henley this morning with all the technical problems, and while they were, uh, whatever they did to it, I don't know, he didn't seem to think it helped, but anyway, while they were fixing the equipment, I composed a little poem, and this this. There's a little humor, but there's also a great truth in this. You know, Brother Walker always tells us about, you know, the pretty blue sky and the pure air and the clean water. And So I composed this little poem. We're back in New Mexico where the air is rare, the people are fair, the skies are blue of a beautiful hue, the streams are clear and cold, but don't look too long for gold. But remember, we have a treasure much more precious, that being one of eternal pleasure. So I wanted to kind of start out with that. And what we intend to discuss this morning, as uh, Brother John mentioned, is the sacrifice and the love of Christ. And, uh, you know, there have always been a lot of questions about why would, uh, why would our Heavenly Father require His only begotten Son to be that sacrifice slain from the foundation of the world? Because we know that Jesus Christ, He committed no personal sin and we also know that he lived his life in a manner which pleased his father. Because you remember his father said on one occasion, this is my only begotten son in whom I am well pleased. In light of this, we have to ask the question then, why did God require a sacrificial death of his only 
begotten Son. Now this, this may appear to be pretty simple on the surface, but as we explore this subject, we will find that there really are several reasons why the sacrificial death of Christ was necessary. We want to take just a few moments and consider just why God required this sacrificial death of His only begotten Son. We know that it was really not the will of God that man should sin. And as Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Really it was the will of God and man was made so that he could be a free moral agent and exercise discretion in the decisions that he made. But we also know that God also required once the human race had been defiled by sin, God required that no man would have access to God's holy presence except on the basis of that of a perfect sacrifice. And we know that Christ indeed was that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We read over in Ezekiel, at 18, verse 23, that God really takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Ezekiel 18:23, we read, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God? and not that he should return from his ways and live. And also we have similar thoughts expressed over in 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's turn over there a moment, please. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, at verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now we know that after man had sinned, God did provide a way of repentance. But since God is the offended party, he has the right to dictate the terms upon which that repentance is extended, and he has set out certain conditions that we as mere mortals have to comply with. First, God requires a willing response to his gracious invitation to be saved and reconciled. But remember, it is only on the basis that God himself has provided. And that basis is through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
as was read earlier, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none under other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now if we will let the scriptures guide us, we can come to some very sound conclusions as to why the perfect sacrifice of Christ was essential. There really are a multitude of reasons, but this morning we want to discuss just a few of them. First, the flesh had to be effectively repudiated. Secondly, sin had to be conquered and condemned. Third, the righteousness and holiness of God was declared. And certainly, last but not least, sinful man should be humbled without any grounds for boasting whatsoever. Let us turn back to Romans a moment. We want to read first from Romans chapter 3. We read in Romans 3, beginning at verse 23, and there's an awful lot said in these five verses we're going to read. Beginning at verse 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. We also read in Romans chapter 8 at verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And also, let us turn to, to Ephesians chapter 2. I know this is a chapter that we're all very familiar with, and and very grateful for some things that are enumerated in this chapter. I want to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past 
in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We see in these references that we've read that certainly the flesh was effectively repudiated. Sin was conquered and condemned by Christ. The righteousness and the holiness of God was declared in and through Christ. And certainly, we have absolutely no grounds for any boasting whatsoever. And we should be very humbled when we consider that God has indeed provided Jesus Christ as our means of redemption. Has God not made it very clear that man cannot approach unto him at all except with a humble faith and also on the basis of bloodshedding? Likewise, Sins put away by sacrifice were forgiven on the basis of bloodshedding and faith. Our Heavenly Father promised a Deliverer who should make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness as we read in a portion of Daniel 9, verse 24. We know that when the fullness of time was indeed come, God revealed His wonderful arrangement whereby the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, as John tells us in his first chapter, verse 14. That wonderful combination of grace and truth was manifested in the personage of the only begotten Son of God, that being Jesus Christ. We know, and we've all read the account, where God selected a virgin of the house of Israel, and he miraculously wrought one that was perfectly fitted for the great work that was required. 
in the outworking of these marvelous events, it was made abundantly clear that God would be properly glorified without any provision whatsoever being made for the glorification of flesh. Therefore, we conclude that the flesh was repudiated even in the birth of Christ, that sin was conquered and condemned in all of his actions, and Christ ultimately freely rendered that perfect obedience even unto death itself. Christ confirmed to the utmost extent in all of his thoughts and actions that scriptural principle that we find in Luke 12:48, that unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. We know that Christ earnestly worked out his perfection and his salvation by the strength which God gave him. And therefore we find that through Christ, God provided the way of life for us. Here we have the sin nature that had produced only, hap or only helpless sinners controlled condemned, and finally put away by that strong Son of God in his perfect obedience of life and death. On this basis of sin nature being conquered, repudiated, and condemned by the one that God made strong for himself, it is on this basis that God forgives. It is on this basis that man can approach the holiness of the Creator and men and women of faith, those sinners, can ultimately be exalted to the divine nature. Let's turn back a moment to Second Peter. And we want to read from Second Peter. And we're lifting a verse a little bit out of context here, but I think we're all familiar with it. And we're not really doing violence to anything. We're, we're rather illustrating a principle. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We know and we read in Hebrews 13.20 that Christ was raised from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Christ was bestowed with immortality and glory as the captain of our salvation who was made perfect through suffering. It was through Christ's loving obedience to his Father's will that he offered that perfect sacrifice in which all ritual sacrifice in ages past is both completed and accomplished. 
neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, as we read in Hebrews 9.12. Does this not speak volumes that Christ's death was indeed that of a perfect sacrifice slain from the foundation of the world. We understand, and certainly we have emphasized, that the sacrifice of Christ and the manner of his death, which did require the shedding of his blood, is that divinely appointed basis by which God, with his attributes, of mercy and forbearance, does indeed offer forgiveness and redemption to sinners. We also know that historically, there has been much controversy caused within the Christadelphian community by the question as to whether Christ offered for his own cleansing or was it only for others. I have a quote here that I'm going to read, and I think this quote provides marvelous guidance concerning a proper comprehension of this vitally important point. And it confirms, I feel, between, or it confirms beyond the shadow of any doubt that Christ's sacrificial death was indeed necessary for Christ to offer for his own cleansing as well as for others. This quote is from Phanerosis, and it's really a summary of Brother John Thomas's work in this book, and it's a summary that Brother Robert Roberts gave. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to listen carefully to it because it really, it answers a lot more questions than whether or not Christ offered for himself or was it only for others. If the question be asked, how came it that Christ's will acted with the Father's as no other man's ever did. It is here that the object of God's manifestation becomes apparent. And I, and I want to insert a little comment here before I continue. We know that Brother John Thomas, in writing Phanerosis, he brought to light, I think, a very marvelous truth that, that it's God's manifestation and not really human salvation that is the primary object of God's work with the human race. And we certainly don't want to minimize the fact that human salvation is certainly a product of it, but primarily it's God's manifestation in the sense that his name and those divine attributes that are His will be manifested one day throughout the earth in those who have put on the name of Christ and thereby and, and have been successful in their 
probation. And in doing this, they have also manifested those qualities that God really wants and those qualities that Christ manifested perfectly in his life here upon the earth. Continuing on, and this is a very important statement, and it takes nothing away from Christ. There never could have been such an obedient man if God had not produced him and made him what he was. But God does not stultify, and that means or cause himself to appear absurd in any part of his work. And I think this is probably the most important statement made in this quote. Therefore, though God in Christ produced one who was righteous under all trial, he, that being God, did not tie or force his will, but gave him, that being Christ, that complete independence of volition or freedom of will and that ample opportunity of disobedience which gave acceptability to his obedience and value and force to it as an example to us. And what, what's that, what that is really saying is that it was God in Christ, and, and we realize the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ were very unique. He was indeed born of a woman, that being Mary. But he was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit that God caused to overshadow Mary. And it was that, and in, in, in that also illustrates how that flesh cannot glory because flesh or man could not have provided a savior for fallen mankind. Only God could. And he did it through the power of his Holy Spirit causing Mary to conceive and to bring forth Jesus Christ. We read on the principle involved in God's procedure towards man absolutely required this. The object aimed at throughout is the voluntary consecration of independent will to his glory. It is for the development of this result that all these ages of evil are allowed. The prevalence of evil is a necessary foundation of righteousness. Here's a very important statement too. If it were not for this element of the work of God, the world's history is without an explanation. Take it away, and we are in darkness. The long reign of evil is the measure of the value that God attaches to the voluntary obedience of independent will. The evil has come through the impartation of this power of independent will. Man has misused it, and hence the reign of evil. But the gloriousness of the obedience of a multitude, 
who will come out of this great tribulation is so great as to be more than a compensation for the night that broods over the world. You know, I think this statement, well, the whole statement really, but particularly that part that I emphasized earlier, this declares to us that Christ possessed the same sinful nature that all of Adam's offspring possess. We know that the Apostle Paul speaks of a law in his members which wars against the laws of God and leads to transgression. Paul calls this physical weakness sin in the flesh or sin that dwelleth in me. I don't want to turn and read it for time constraints and it's kind of lengthy, but you can turn over to Romans 7, particularly verses 15 through 25, and see exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And we all have this same war within our members. This is the diabolos in human nature. Those natural desires of the flesh, which if they are allowed to mature, bring forth sin. There can be no denial of such a law. We are all very personally acquainted with it. These natural tendencies are as much a part of us as our eyes and our ears. And when we yield to these propensities, we stimulate evil desires in that direction and make sin more active. Let's turn over to James. I think James sums it up for us very well. In the first chapter of James... We want to read at verse 14. And this is something that we can all relate to. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You know, we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Then when lust hath conceived... It bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. When we consider the plain language of certain essential principles that are articulated for us in the book of Hebrews, and we also have prophecies, and we also have certain types of the law, that teach us that all things were to ultimately be cleansed by that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This voluntary offering of Christ obviously involved the shedding of his own blood when he was subjected to the horrible death that he suffered on the cross. However, we can take great comfort in knowing that God's infinite wisdom and his glorious plan of redemption for fallen man required that not one of Adam's condemned race, including Jesus himself 
as God's only begotten Son, that not one should have access to the most holy place except on the basis of that perfect sacrifice of Christ. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about the death and sacrifice of Christ and what it accomplished for himself and what it has made potential for us. <clears throat> I now want to kind of turn to another phase of this. You know, in John chapter 13 at verse 34, we find that Christ instructed his disciples and said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. We might wonder, well, just how was this a new commandment? We know that this really didn't constitute a new commandment or a new principle in interacting with others because we know that Israel had been instructed by God through Moses back in Leviticus that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now as we analyze this statement and think about it, I think we have to come to the conclusion that Christ is elevating the command to love one another to a much higher level as was manifested in Christ's example of complete and dedicated sacrificial love to his disciples. We know that the words of John 13:34 that we just read where he was he told them he had given them a new commandment that they were to love one another as he had loved them. These words were spoken by Christ during a very critical and stressful time in his ministry. These words were spoken when his approaching trial and death were drawing ever nearer. Christ had just told his disciples in the preceding verse, that being verse 33 of John 13, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go ye cannot come, so now I say to you, now the statement there that we just read would probably do little to bolster the morale of the followers of Christ and it certainly, you would think, would not strengthen their confidence at that very time. But I think we have to realize that a statement such, of this, such as this really seems to be clearly out of character for Christ to intentionally dishearten the spirits of his followers as they steadily approached the coming crisis of his trial and subsequent death by crucifixion. We noticed in this verse, he used the term 
little children. In doing this, Christ is beautifully expressing his love for them, which serves as that tender introduction to where he was going to disclose to them that he would soon be living their midst, leaving their midst. Christ did not tell them exactly how long it would be before he would no longer be with them. But I'm sure they probably sensed the imminence of the situation that was about to transpire. Even though his disciples would not be able to follow him in the approaching circumstances of his death, as little children, they would follow him later as we find in John 13, 36. We know that they would see him again later, and this would be when they saw him again after his resurrection. And this event truly electrified their spirits and energized their preaching of the gospel message. And what Christ was doing he was imploring his disciples to love each other as he had loved each of them. You know, we have a very striking example of this kind of love, and it really can be observed in the actions of Christ toward Judas. And remember now that Christ knew that Judas had wicked intentions in his heart that would ultimately lead to the betrayal of Christ and his subsequent death on the cross. But yet we find that Christ exhibited no malice toward Judas, and he only requested that he do quickly what he was about to do. Jesus was about to lay down his life for his disciples. And this demonstrated the depth of love that he expected of them in their attitudes and their actions toward each other if they were to be obedient to this so-called new commandment. You know, the love that Christ implores his followers to have is much, much more than just a feeling. We often hear people sometimes describe a good feeling as that warm and fuzzy feeling. And you know, one cannot always control or even command a feeling. Genuine love involves being willing to and actually doing what is best for others and not considering ourselves first. A self-sacrificing love is required of a true believer. Perhaps not many of us, if any, 
will be called upon to literally sacrifice our lives. But we can give sacrificially of our substance or our material possessions in this world. We know that the Apostle John addresses this very essential area of our walk as follows. And we're going to quote from 1 John chapter 3 beginning at verse, at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby we perceive the love of God, and that's something the translators put in. It would be rendered better the love of Christ, because not that God didn't exhibit love also, but Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And that, as I said, is from 1 John 3, 14 through 18. God's will alone is that which is truly good in any and all situations. Therefore, love should always act in obedience to God's will. And this often requires spiritual discernment on the part of believers. We know that our Lord Jesus Christ has revealed to us a wonderful example of a life guided by such a worthy objective. Christ only did those things that he knew were in accordance with his Father's will. As believers, as brothers and sisters of Christ, this same pattern should be evident in us. John has also told us, He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Certainly we know that feelings of compassion and concern will be present as the believer more and more completely shares in God's own love for those around him or her. But such feelings are neither the source nor the evidence for this love that Jesus demands of his followers. As brothers and sisters of Christ, let us always realize that the withholding of love is truly a repudiation of the Spirit of Christ. We will be condemned for such behavior because it indicates 
that we truly never knew Christ. And as far as we are concerned, our actions would indicate that he actually lived in vain. One that has failed to grasp the love and compassion that Christ had for the world and that he emphasized for his followers may be described as follows. And this is a line from a poem I found in a book called The Greatest Thing in the World. Remember now, this is a poem that describes one who, never, who failed to grasp the love and compassion that Christ had for the world and also that we are exhorted to show to our fellow human beings and especially to our fellow believers. I lived for myself. I thought for myself. For myself and none beside. Just as if Jesus had never lived, as if he had never died. May it be our indescribable blessing and privilege to personally share and rejoice in the love of Christ upon his return. Thank you.